Amen. Good morning and welcome to the house of the Lord. And welcome to you who are listening online this morning. I'm Pastor David Nigra filling in for Pastor Rick. If you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 4. The title of this morning's message is Inside Out. Now the author of this psalm is King David and the occasion is thought to be when he is on the run from his son Absalom, who is attempting to overthrow his throne. Now, for most of you, it will appear in your Bible as a title of the safety of the faithful. And though that is true, I think there's more to this psalm than just that title. You know, many of David's psalms are a result of him being under some extreme pressure, some adverse circumstances that he found himself in. And being a musician, he took the occasion to write these things down as he was going through them and put them to song. Now, today we don't have the musical side to these, but we do have what he wrote, as God has preserved them as scripture so that we can benefit from them. Now, in terms of, you know, expressing oneself, that's a, it's really symbolic of voicing what's going on inside of someone. And, uh, you know, this can happen by being so full of emotion that you just got to let it out, right? I think we've all been there at one time. But sometimes it takes some external force to kind of bear upon us to really reveal what's going on inside of us. And... Not only maybe what's going on emotionally inside of us, but it can also reveal our true character. In other words, if you put somebody under enough pressure, you might begin to see what it is that they truly believe. What are their convictions? Exactly what is it that they stand for? And uh, I think that, you know... This was a situation that went on with David for many years as God was preparing him both to become king and ultimately, of course, we have, as a result, the Psalms. Now, why is it that God allows these things to come upon us so that we are put under pressure? Well, some of the things I think, the reason why that he would do something like that is really dependent on what he wants to accomplish. So it may be that he simply wants you to get a a look at your heart so that you can see something about yourself that you otherwise wouldn't know and that God wants to reveal to you, to give you an opportunity perhaps to, to make a change. You know, Paul tells us that we ought to examine ourselves. But how deep a dive do we take when we are examining ourselves? And I think sometimes, you know, those external pressures, they have a way of giving us insight into ourselves that we might not otherwise have. Or it may be that God wants you to have a greater dependency on him. Perhaps you haven't learned to trust him fully enough for him to accomplish what it is that he wants in you. And so sometimes the situation is that he wants you to learn to trust him more. And being put in a difficult circumstance could help teach you that. It also may be that he wants to break you because sometimes we must be broken that we might be remade into a vessel of honor that God can pour his spirit into us. And that is also a reason, I think, that he allows 
difficult circumstances into our lives. Looking at David's life, the the Psalms that he wrote, and there's some 73 that he wrote, they seemed in large part to be an expression of a godly man that is put under extreme pressure. A man who was after God's own heart, but uh, who struggled under circumstances, much of which was brought about by injustice, by evil men, and even to some degree by his own sin. I think the Psalms are beloved to us because even through the circumstances, and they are oftentimes difficult, as we see David go through these and we see how he handles them, uh, it is, I think, something that we then greatly benefit from as his example. Let's look at verse 1 as uh, we see David writing here. He says, Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness. You have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy and hear my prayer. So the plea here begins with wanting to be heard. And, you know, he wants God not only to hear him, but respond. You know, when we call out to someone... We're looking for an acknowledgement, not just that they heard, but that they're responding, right? If someone's walking away from us and I call to them, they might hear me, but if they don't turn and I have then their attention, I don't know that they are actually hearing what I'm saying. And so we'll call out louder and louder until they respond. And so I think in this, you know, he, he is asking, Lord, not, not to just hear what I'm saying, but to respond as he is uh, looking for God to move on his behalf. And he doesn't presume that God must respond, which is interesting. You know, with with David, he, he knows God is listening, and he believes that he's going to respond, but he doesn't he doesn't presume. And he doesn't look at, you know, this righteousness that he says he has as being really his own. He says, God of my righteousness. In other words... Hear me not because I'm righteous on my own, but because I belong to you. I'm made righteous by you. And I think this is an Old Testament example of an understanding of being positionally righteous in God. Not that, that we are righteous on our own, but because of Christ, we understand that we are made righteous. And even though in sinful flesh right now, positionally God sees us as righteous. And David... It seems to me he understood that and how he is expressing that here. I'm reminded uh, in Paul's writing, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, he says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, perhaps David didn't fully understand it would be the blood of Christ that would be responsible for making him righteous. But he knew that God would account his faith as righteousness, just as God did so for Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. He says, you have relieved me in my distress. Have mercy on me. And I think David is remembering, you know, how God has done so much in the years preceding this. Remember, at this point in time, David has already undergone uh, a 10-year period where Saul was seeking his life. And he learned a lot at that. Learning how to wait upon God, to be delivered by God through those circumstances. And so, you know, he already understands that God has in the past relieved his distress. 
And he's now still asking for God's mercy. Because once again, he finds himself in a situation where he's, he's outside of himself. His situation is such that he is dependent on the Lord. And he knows that God is allowing this. He knows that it's at the hand of God this is taking place. You know, how important is it to recount those things that God has done for us? As David is talking about here, he he knows that God has relieved him of his distress in the past. What about us? What do we do when we come into circumstances that are unwelcome? Do you recount to the things that God has done for you? And do you take solace in that, trusting that God will again move on your behalf? I think it is such an important thing for us to, to remember what God has done. How much better it is to do that than to fret over what we hope God will do. Because I think doing so strengthens our faith. And it is one of the reasons that, you know, there is a statement that is made that um, a faith not tested is a faith not worth having. Because the reality of that is when we are tested and God moves on our behalf, uh, how special is that? And don't you bookmark that? And go back to that when you find yourself in a situation that you are needing the Lord to move on your behalf. David says, hear my prayer. Not only, you know, hear me when I call, but listen to what it is that I need, O God. Respond is what he's asking. Lord, please, on my behalf, do what is needed. Because God is the only one in this circumstance that can do it. He's on the run, and he's not on the run with very many. He's outnumbered. His life is in danger. And yet, while he doesn't know what God will do, he's still trusting him. He says in verse 2, How long, O you sons of men, will you turn my glory to shame? How long will you love worthlessness and seek falsehood? You know, the enemy always seeks to pervert and destroy whatever comes from God. I mean, that's the idea of glory to shame. God seated David upon the throne, and whether it was a decade of running from Saul or the act of treason from Absalom, David, he was tired of the lies and of the false accusations that were being hurled against him. And I think he's tired of the attempts to create this false narrative of the man that they were saying he was, and it all wasn't true. He's tired of all of it, and not to mention the attempts on his life, because unlike somebody just saying things about you that are untrue, David had men who were seeking to kill him. And I think this is part of what the enemy does to God's people. You know, he is the accuser of the brethren, and I ask you this morning, what do you do when you're falsely accused or or persecuted? Uh, Do you look for God to vindicate you, or do you try to vindicate yourself? One of the things that I think is so remarkable about David, and there are many, is his example of just trusting God to be the one to vindicate him. And time and time again, David did this, and God indeed vindicated David. One thing I would like to point out in, in all of this is, you know, what we read in 1 Samuel 2.8, he raises the poor from the dust 
and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. It's a picture, really, of what God did for David, taking him from the fields of being a shepherd and then placing him upon the throne. And it is also a picture of what God does for us as Christ has made us to inherit the glory that belongs to him. In 2 Samuel 7, God promised David that his throne would endure forever. And I, I think that David, in this circumstance, suspects that God isn't going to just cause his throne now to endure through a son taking it over. But he doesn't ever really seem to discount God's sovereignty, that he has the right to do as he pleases. And so he's not presumptive in all this. And he realizes that God is allowing what's taking place. He says, how long? Twice. I mean, he repeats this because there always seems to be some element of those who are against him, who were slandering his name and character, but themselves were worthless, unrighteous. These are the ones the devil found, I think, useful at times like this, and they'll try to rally others to their side against David. There are many, I think, who simply just hate righteousness and and therefore righteous people. And if you've ever experienced this, just being in the presence of, of others who notice that you're righteous can have an effect. And sometimes that effect is an unpleasant one for you. Think about this. Just noticing a single politician wants to stand up for anything righteous today. How quickly millions will come against them. Just full of hate and vitriol. And they don't care one bit about what the righteousness that is attached to their statement is. They hate them for it. And it is, I think, no different in David's day. There were those who very similarly hated righteousness and hated him because he indeed was a righteous king. Well, how does this verse apply to you and me? Well, I think for starters, the mission of the enemy against us is the same as it was for David, you know, to pervert and to destroy whatever it is that God has established for us. And in effect, to remove us from the throne of God's intention for our lives, if he can, to render us feeble and impotent and unable to produce any work in the kingdom. I mean, that's what he wants to do. And he wants to destroy us, ultimately, if he can. It shouldn't surprise you. The Bible tells us this very clearly. And to know it, I think, is an important reminder. Because that's what he would do if he could. But God is faithful. And David knew that. And he knew that God's allowing these things to happen because God always has his reasons, even though when they're not clear to us. And David, I think, in this case, suspects he knows what's going on here. He knows that this is happening because of sin that took place in his life, because God had given him an advance notice. And so let's take a look at the following verse when David is on the run from Absalom. Even though he knows that this is from the Lord, let's look at what he has to say. Now, at this point, there's a man who's hurling insults at David as they are moving through. He's at a distance, and his name is Shemaiah. And he's now cursing David. We pick up in Second Samuel 16. This is verse 9 through 13. 
Then Abishai, the son of Zariah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord, the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, What have I do to with you, you sons of Zariah? So let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then shall say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all his servants, See how my son who came from my own body seeks my life, and how much more now this Benjamite. Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. I mentioned this This was linked to a previous sin in David's life. When David fell with Bathsheba, Nathan the prophet comes to David and he pronounces God's judgment on this. First, Nathan said that the sword would never depart from David's house. Ultimately, it was fulfilled in the successive violent deaths of at least three of his sons. Amnon, ultimately Absalom, will also be killed. And then, uh, lastly in this, is Adonijah. Also to be fulfilled at this time is going to be something Nathan told David, and that his own wives would be humiliated before all Israel. And this was fulfilled when Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. And then third, Nathan had pronounced the fatal end of the son conceived by David's sin with Bathsheba, and that was fulfilled seven days after Nathan's judgment was given to David. So David knows that the sword wasn't going to leave his house, and he sees what's taking place with his son now, and I think he's assuming it is part of that. And so he is, at this point, just reconciling that this is God's doing. And at this point, he just wants to trust God, whatever his will. And he is hoping, of course, that God will, in the end, bless him through this. Are the men that David speaks about, these worthless men, uh, are they the enemies of God? Yes, they are. And yet God will use them as an instrument of judgment against sin. And he does this sometimes to chasten the righteous. He's done it throughout history. And whenever we see it, it, it just is so difficult for us to understand it. It just doesn't seem right. Yet God has no problem doing this. He did it with Israel. In fact, he, he continues to do it even today. And so it shouldn't be a surprise, although it is never welcome, it seems. God's promise that David will always have a man on the throne will indeed be upheld, and yet so will God's judgment on sin. And I caution you not to look at this situation and presume that, you know, all adversity that comes in our lives is a product of some sin, because it's not. And it's not the case in David's life either. In the years that he had been sought by Saul, that wasn't because of some sin in his life. It was because this was God's way of preparing David for taking the throne. And so we don't always know why God is allowing something. But do you trust when he brings it that in the end it will be for good? Because that's what it is for the righteous. It is always for good. And I think it's important to look at that and remember it when we're going through something. 
He says in verse 3, But know that the Lord has set apart for himself him who is godly. And the Lord will hear when I call to him. So David recognizes that, you know, he belongs to God and that God makes a separation between those who love him and those who don't. And I think it's a great encouragement to us as we see, you know, this imperfect man who just loves God and with all his heart. And yet, you know, he himself is just imperfect. And so his life, I think, is that living example of, you know, God's love upon sinful man. Because, you know, God, God said of David that he was a man after his own heart. Because David loved God so deeply. And in spite of all of his flaws, and he had many, uh, God was always first. And I think this is something that is so remarkable about him and makes, you know, studying David's life worthwhile. And why I think the Psalms are so rich and that there's so much there. You know, David, he didn't have the benefit of the following verse that we read in John 10, Jesus speaking. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. David understood that God separated those who love him from those who don't. Even though he didn't have Jesus' words, he understood this about God's character. And he knew enough that God would would hear his prayer because he is the good shepherd. And he does know his sheep. It's an Old Testament picture of the elect, those who are separated, the ones who are called out. We call them saints in the New Testament. And while the Old Testament man was under the law, grace still was present. God still showed grace in the Old Testament. And I think sometimes people forget that God was no different in the Old Testament than he is in the New. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And so remember that uh, even as you go through a difficult circumstance, God is still gracious. He is still merciful. David writes in verse 4, Be angry and do not sin. Meditate with your heart, within your heart on your bed and be still. Paul wrote a similar thing in Ephesians 4. Be angry and do not sin. And do not let the sun go down on your wrath. You know, sometimes you have a right to be angry. Sometimes there's the righteous indignation that comes. And yet, you still don't have a right to sin. Anger is one of those things that can quickly cross over into a place of sin. And so the caution is uh, allow yourself to be angry, but meditate. Allow God to work in your heart so that you don't enter into sin. And one of the things we see as an example is those who are moved by anger to blow up abortion clinics and kill an abortion doctor. And I think those are pretty clear examples of, you know, crossing that line. And while we understand the reason why someone would be angry over the killing of the unborn, God still doesn't permit that kind of behavior. And in fact, you know, we understand listening to Jesus that hatred is murder that begins in the heart. And yet, how easy it is to hate. You know, it's something that I think all of us can experience quickly as we 
look at something like this. To hate those who are killing the unborn would be an easy thing to do. And yet God says it, it's murder. And I know we don't typically think of it that way. But, you know, you look at the Sermon on the Mount and um, you find out just how high a standard God holds for righteousness. And if you ever begin to feel self-righteous, you just need to read the Sermon on the Mount. And I think it'll cure you pretty quick. Because which one of us can live up to the things that Jesus speaks of there? How much we have a need for him. So, what do we do to meditate? Do we, you know, for some, meditating is stewing in anger. And, you know, today, isn't there just so much that you see in the news, for instance, that just wants to move you to a place of being really hot under the collar? I know it is for me. I stopped looking at the news uh, so much because of that. It just is nothing good. And I find that, you know, I'm, I'm generally stirred to anger. So that's not the intent. When you're meditating, the intent is to allow God to work in your heart and uh, let him hopefully give to you the mind of Christ. In verse 5, we read, Offer the sacrifices of the righteous and put your trust in the Lord. Uh, what are the sacrifices of the righteous? Well, I think there are a number, and we certainly aren't going to go through all of them this morning, but... I think they boil down to this, deny yourself, pick up your cross, and follow the Lord. And, you know, obedience is what is required in order to be able to sacrifice righteously. You know, not sinning because God has commanded us, which is so contrary to the flesh and so difficult in many cases for us to do. You know, looking, for instance, in the case of someone who commits evil against us, and, you know, God has pointed out to us, for instance, Romans 12, you know, repay no one evil for evil and have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. He says, Paul, this is writing, um, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. Well, if your enemy's hungry, feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him a drink, for in so doing you'll heap coals of fire on his head. And do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Well, of course, Paul is telling us something that Jesus already told us, and it isn't any easier to hear when he says it, is it? You know, the natural side of us, um, it's just contrary to all of this. And I, I watch in David's life how he handles these things, and I just marvel at it because he's this guy that does things I can't see myself doing. I don't understand how he does what he does in obedience to God. And I, I think that um, that's what makes him so remarkable. Even though he's just a man, just no different than any of us, except in this, that he seems to understand and is able to live these things out. You know, he's faced in this situation um, with someone who's seeking his life, right? And yet, uh, he doesn't look to to go on the offensive. Think about one instance here where David is on the run from Saul, and he is he is in the desert of En Gedi, and he is hiding in a cave. He knows Saul's seeking after him. He knows they're close. And so he and the men that are with him are tucked into a cave. The back of the cave, they're waiting, and in walks Saul. 
Saul is now coming out of the sun and he's going to take a rest there. And let's pick that up here in 1 Samuel 24. We read this. Then the men of David said to him, This is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David arose, and he secretly cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And now it happened afterward that David had his heart troubled because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. And so David restrained his servants with these words, and he did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave, and he went on his way. Well, you know, he had every chance at this point to say, well, God is delivering him into my hand. I'm just going to go ahead and take his life and be done with it. But he doesn't do that. And afterwards, he restrains his men as well, because they too wanted to act on his behalf and take Saul out. But David doesn't do that. He holds them back as well. And then, even more remarkable is, he doesn't have any pride in the fact that he didn't kill him. He feels bad that he cut a piece of his robe off, feeling that he shouldn't have even touched him. And I, uh, I look at that and I think, wow, could I do that in the same circumstance? Um, amazing to me. But yet, this is, I think, what God is after. This is what made God say that David was a man after his own heart. Because he, in fact, did these kinds of things. And what trust he had to show in this, right? To not take advantage of that situation and just say, I'm going to trust God. I'm going to trust that God is going to take care of this down the road because I trust him. In verse 6, we read, There are many who say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. Well, you know, there's always those who are going to doubt God, right? Even though there were those that are with David at this time, they too uh, were probably wondering and and saying to themselves, who's going to help us? Who is going to show us any kindness, any good during this situation? Doubting that that, uh, they would be delivered. And who will come to the aid of the true king in this? Well, David answers this, I think, by faith and Time again, you know, he's seen the deliverance of God's hand in his life. And he doesn't know what God's going to do for sure, but he's hopeful and he's trusting that God will indeed do this. And he says, lift up the light of your countenance upon us. In other words, God, show everyone that it is you who is going to show us good. You know, James writes that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father above. And I think David knew that. And he's asking for God's blessing in all of this, in spite of what's happening. And, I, you know, I also, again, just admire him so much because I think in, in me going through his situation here, I would be asking God a lot of questions. And he doesn't ask, it doesn't seem like he asks anything about why. Have you ever been going through a difficult time? What's the first question that comes to your mind? It's usually why. Why am why is this happening? And, you know, is it something that I've done? Now, David probably has his suspicions, I, I don't doubt, but he doesn't vocalize it. He doesn't ask God, why is this happening? He just trusts that God is still with him. 
And I think that is extraordinary. And it's something I want to emulate when I am in a difficult spot in life. You know, I'm reminded of Job when he was enduring so much grief and just struggling to find answers. And, you know, he uh, believed that he was a righteous man, and yet this stuff was happening to him that I'm sure he he couldn't reconcile any of it. But he ends up landing on faith just in spite of what's taking place. Such that he says, though he slay me, I will trust him. And, uh, you know, I think David's that kind of man also. He just trusts God, even though he's going through the worst of it. And um, I want to be that kind of person. Don't you? I mean, don't you want to emulate that kind of faith and trust? Sometimes I think faith is a choice just in the stubborn belief of the character of God, in spite of everything else that's going on, regardless what's happening at the moment, to just stand on that, that I trust God because I know his character. And while I don't understand everything that's happening, I'm going to lock down on this very thing, that, Lord, I trust you. I trust you because of who you are, even though I don't see the end right now, even though I don't see relief from my circumstances. You know, we, um, we love reading about the fiery furnace in Daniel 3, right? The king's commanded that all will worship the image under threat of pain and punishment of death. And then those mighty three say, and we'll all just read this for us. Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Don't you love the attitude that goes along with, but if not? I mean, it's the thing that we just say, yes, right? Because what is it? It's a, it's a defiance in the face of all that's happening. I don't care. I will not be moved. And this is something that I think is, is necessary in life to be able to say that no matter what, that you will not be moved, that you trust God because you know who he is. Well, in verse 7, David writes this, You have put gladness in my heart more than in the season that their grain and wine increased. You know, there's a joy that comes from your relationship with the Lord that surpasses anything in terms of earthly blessings. There's a lot that God gives to us on this earth and a lot that I think are genuinely something to be enjoyed. But there is nothing on this earth that compares to the joy that comes from your relationship with him. And I think one of the things that... uh, prevents that is, you know, a lack of devotion. Because I imagine you've all heard the acronym JOY, right? Jesus, others, and yourself, right? If If you put those things in that order, that's how you'll experience joy. Well, there's a lot of truth in that, I believe, and though that itself is not something, the acronym, that is, in Scripture, those principles are. Inasmuch as God has commanded us that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you love your neighbor as yourself. And then after that, God takes care of the rest with us. 
But devotion is something oftentimes that's lacking. You know, I I had a conversation with my youngest son. He moved out to Colorado back in the summertime and attending a church out there. He said, you know, Dad, one of the things that I noticed is there's a problem with attendance on weekends because, you know, Colorado is one of these places where everybody's just enjoying the outdoors. It's wonderful out there, right? I mean, in the summer, you can hike and bike and do all kinds of stuff and climb. And then in the winter, it's skiing and snowboarding and all of that. And a lot of the, the folks out there, they just end up dedicating their weekends to going out and having fun. And um, he noticed that, that attendance, you know, as soon as the snow started, the attendance plummeted. It's a sign of a lack of devotion, if you ask me. That's not to say you can never miss church, that you can't go have a ski weekend. I'm not trying to say that is, is you know, something that in itself is just uh, automatically, oh, you lack devotion. But to repeatedly place those things first is an indication, I think. And whether it's that or something else, uh, to indulge, I think, ourselves um, is a lack of devotion. And, and you know, self-indulgence, self-indulgence is one of those things that just contributes to people being depressed. And, and uh, you know, if it, if it doesn't cause them to be depressed, it certainly is going to keep them from coming out of depression. If you continually lick your own wounds and indulge yourself, that's going to be your state. I've seen it over and over again. The moment somebody picks up their eyes from themselves and begins to look at what they can do for the Lord, what they can do for others, things start to change for them. And um, that's one of the reasons I think, you know, Hollywood ends up with so many people just self-medicating. Drugs, alcohol, they've got all this wealth, this fame, but all this self-indulgence ends up doing for them is causing them to be depressed and dissatisfied. Because you can't become satisfied by the the things in life apart from first being satisfied spiritually. God knows how to bring those things to you that you desire. Psalm 37 tells us, Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Do you believe that? I do. Because I can tell you something. Um, There's... In my own life, something that I noticed in that when I gave finally my life entirely to Christ, then instead of protecting those areas where I thought I needed to hold on to something so that I could get what I wanted out of life, when I let that go is when God began to give those things to me that I desired. It's completely opposite of what you might think, but that's how he does it. It's what his word tells us, and that's what ends up happening. And if you don't know that, you might go through your life thinking that somehow just turning everything over to him is somehow going to deny yourself of something that you want so much. But I'm here to tell you that oftentimes God just gives you the desires of your heart because you've given your heart to him. Well, in verse 8, and this is our last verse this morning, David writes, I will both lie down in peace and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And what a wonderful expression of confidence in the care and the protection from the Lord. You know, today we have, um, you know, we got home alarms and 
Many of you probably have a firearm at your bedside if you don't see me after service. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Um, But the point is that, you know, we have all these things that um, David didn't have during this time. And yet he was able to rest in the knowledge that God had him. You know, he didn't have anything to protect him except the shield of the Lord. And he trusted him. And he was able to sleep, to rest, and to be at peace. And uh, I think that is, again, just remarkable. Something I would like to emulate in my life. Are you able to trust God that you have peace in your heart? Or do you suffer from, you know, anxiety and stress? We've got a world out there that is just, you know, trying to stress us all out, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, I think so. It does for me. And so... You know, what do we do with all of that? Do we fret, you know, and uh, worry? Or do we turn those things over to God and just trust him in that? Look, you know, our problems just don't go away. I'm not trying to tell you that there's some, you know, formula here that if you apply this, you'll never have any stress in your life. I'm not saying that. I'm sure David found what he was going through very stressful. Yet somehow in the midst of all that, He was able to lay his head down at night and sleep and rest, trust God, even though he had no handle on what was happening, even though his circumstances were out of his control, he still just trusted God. And that is where I want to get to in my life. And I imagine you too, because I want to be able to just cast my cares upon the Lord and leave them with him so that I'm not concerned about every single little thing that goes on which is what I think we're most of us prone to. Now, if you don't trust Christ as your personal Savior, then you shouldn't have any peace. And if that's uh, someone this morning listening, that reason is because you're living apart from the salvation that only comes through Jesus Christ and awaiting a, a judgment at death that you can't bear. The only answer to that is to repent and to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you can do that simply by asking him. And so then comes the peace, the peace of knowing that I am reconciled with God and that everything else is secondary. And I think that, too, is something that we must always remember. The things of this life, they do weigh on us. I know that. But yet, how much greater is God? Let me ask you, do you trust God in death? but not in life. I think that's something that a lot of us do. When it comes to salvation, right there, I trust you, Lord. I know that when I die, I will be with you. But then I'll turn around and be concerned about every other thing going on in my life and not trust him with those kinds of things. Are you like that? Because I know I'm like that. I struggle with that that kind of stuff. And uh, I have to remember, I trust you with the most important aspect of who I am. Why can't I trust you with my job and this and that and all the other things that that life is made up of? So I think it is, again, something to um, strive for, to trust him. Philippians 4, 6 and 7, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Well, it's true. It's just hard to do. 
isn't it? Yeah. The old adage of take two scripture verses and call me in the morning, it's just not enough. <laughs> you know, it's just not. It isn't. And I think, you know, what we have to take away is we have to have a very real faith, right? Because that's the antidote to all of this, to be able to um, trust in our Lord for all of these things. I mentioned that there's a faith not tested is a faith not worth having. But, you know, it comes by testing, and that isn't easy. Who wants to be tested? We love the story of the furnace. Who wants the furnace? Anybody want to raise their hand? I mean, I I don't want the furnace. I just like the idea of being able to say those things, right? I don't really want to be confronted by those things. Yet, the only time you'll ever know what your faith is all about is if when you get confronted and you come through that, that's the only time you will truly know. I could tell you all day long that that chair will hold your weight, but until you sit in it, you won't know. I can tell you hanging off the, you know, the wall on a rope, that rope will take your weight, but until you cinch up and go off that wall, you won't truly trust it. Well, that's kind of what happens with us when it comes to our faith. This is why God allows things in our lives many times, is to increase faith. And here's what I, I tried to take away from all of that. When God allows something, I really try very quickly to get to the, what is he after? Because I would like to achieve that and then stop, right? <laughs> I mean, I'm not going to tell you something that isn't true here. I, I mean, I, I feel that way. I don't want to undergo those things any longer than I have to. And uh, you're probably right there with me. Well, you know, I said to you that faith is a choice. And uh, remember what Jesus said in John 11. You know, he said, do you believe and it was a question that he he gave to the the disciples at the time. Do you believe? Well, do we? The, the question still remains. It is a matter of choice. And for us, I think that is key. I choose to believe. I choose to lock down my faith and be steadfast in what I know. And I don't care what else comes. That's the attitude that I've had to take. And I think it's the one that will serve me best. You know, we have the Psalms of David because when the pressures of life came, uh, he poured out his heart to the Lord in song. And I, I look at a man who, despite his imperfections, was just totally in love with God and steadfast in his trust of him. He, he always, always, it seemed, ended his Psalms in praise didn't matter what's going on. He'd cry out in that psalm, all that was taking place, cry out asking for God to, to move on his behalf, and then end on the note of faith and praise. Always. Well, that's, I think, something to take note of and to model after. From God's perspective, David was a man after his own heart. And, you know, God's promises to David, they were real. But so are God's promises to us. And my encouragement to you this morning is to just trust God and allow him to do a work in you from the inside out. Let's pray. Well, Father, we do thank you for even the trials and tribulations that come, giving to us a chance, Lord, to trust you. Thank you for uh, just all, Lord, that you do on our behalf. Even when difficulties come, uh, they are from your hand. And, Lord, we know that... uh, 
ultimately for our good. We love you this morning, Lord, and we want you to know that. In Jesus' name.